This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Guten Tag! Welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This week's guest is Nicole. I still can't pronounce her surname. It's a German name. Let's do that again. This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello! Welcome to the Ireland podcast. <coughs> this is Fender Jackson. And my guest this week, I'm proud to say, is Nicole Schwabacher. Nicole is a teacher turned author, a teacher turned artist, if you want. I'm a teacher turned podcaster. And maybe listening to this episode, all you teachers out there who wanted to write that book or write that poem or do that dance or swim that marathon, you can do it. You can do it. Just do it. I know you have to plan around it, but you know, you can do it, you know. Okay, so what's the book called? It's called Inyo's Ring, I-N-Y-O, apostrophe, S, new word, ring, as in ring a bell. And it's got everything in it, shipwrecks, a storm, Grace O'Malley and her warriors, the scenes that are taking place at Greenwich Palace with Queen Elizabeth, and yeah, it's set in Galway in the 17th century, I think it is. It's very fascinating, it's epic, it's gripping, it would make a great movie or a Netflix series. I was going to put this in the Galway podcast, but you know what? I felt that this is maybe too big for the Galway podcast. Galway podcast is more local, you know, but this has got potential. This could be turned into a Netflix series or a movie. So, maybe you teachers out there who have got skills in script writing. This could be a three-teacher project. Imagine and then imagine if there's loads of teachers in the movie. That'd be fantastic. Sting, he was a teacher, wasn't he? So was John Hume, the greatest Irishman of all time. Teachers are fantastic. Anyway, this conversation's wide-ranging. We talk about the Inyo's Ring. We talk about the Clatter Ring. We talk about Spanish Armada. What it takes to write a book. We talk about Prince, of course. We talk about James Brown. We try not to talk about Michael Jackson. But we feel. We talk about Netflix. We talk about all manners of stuff. And it's very long, so I'm going to stop talking. Band stop. John Devlin, you do your thing now. Okay. I, Put down that cup of tea. Right. I'm John Devlin, and you're listening to the Ireland Podcast. Hello. Who are you, and what do you do? Hello. My name is Nicole. Uh, I am a writer, I'm also a teacher. And uh, I'm here because my book uh, is set, or part of it, in Galway. And uh, yeah, I'd love to tell you more about it. Brilliant. Okay, so let's cut to the chase. What is the name of the book? Uh, so I wrote a book called Inyo's Ring. Uh, and Inyo is the name of my Spanish protagonist. It's spelled I-N-Y-O, Inyo's Ring. And it's the story of a Spanish Armada shipwreck survivor in Ireland. Um, it's also a story about a clan in danger and the origins of the clattering. Okay, let's hear some of your book then, Nicole. Please, would you read an extract? Yes, yes, of course. I'd be happy to read. This, this scene is set in Galway. The night Grace O'Malley, Gronewell, escapes from prison and my protagonists, Inyo and Finley, have to reach her in time and have to help her get to her ship. Here we go. Night had wrapped itself around them, its deep shade of ink flooding the even deeper black of the forests. 
The horses thundered along the empty main road, carrying Inyo and Finley to the edge of Galway. Inyo followed Finley across the bridge, his clammy hands tightening on the reins as the echo of the horse's hoofs began to drown under the rushing of the river below. They entered through the gate while the town slumbered. They rode along the dark streets past the church in the deserted square. When they reached the town's eastern gate, Finley motioned Inyo to a shadowy alley next to the open archway where she dismounted. Let's leave the horses further back where they can't be seen, she whispered. The governor's mansion is outside the gate. Inyo nodded and jumped off Cormac. After the horses were tied up to a rail, he and Finley crept back to the gate, ducking in the shadows and peeking out past the city wall. The main road curved away from them and uphill towards the governor's mansion. A guard with a halberd strode across the fenced courtyard. He paused at the mansion's main gate and then disappeared behind the building. Suddenly, two figures popped up from behind the bushes next to the building. They didn't look like soldiers. Maybe servants, Inyo wondered. The larger of them, wearing a hooded cape, limped next to a smaller figure, a maid with disheveled hair. They both crossed the courtyard and staggered out the gate towards the town. Finley whispered, what's going on? Who is that? Inyo narrowed his eyes, wondering why the limping figure, the taller of the two servants, seemed oddly familiar. But a movement drew his attention back to the governor's mansion, where a bearded man, carrying a sword, started to chase after the servants. We mustn't be seen, Finley whispered, pulling him back into the darkness of the alley. Inyo held his breath, listening intently. While the crunch of footsteps drew closer and closer, he slowly unsheathed his sword. A startled scream shredded the air, followed by a thud, shuffling and heavy breathing. Then a deep voice cut through the darkness. Freeze! Finley's grip on Inyo tightened as the larger of the two servants limped into view with her back turned. The figure stumbled and fell as the man approached with his sword. He had the smaller mate by her arm, dragging her while she struggled and sobbed. He kicked her hard, knocking her out, and then whipped his sword toward the servant on the ground. No need to wait until tomorrow to see you on the gallows, he sneered, his voice like a sharp dagger. Let's take care of business right here, right now, Gronya well. Finley gasped. It's Mamo, she whispered. Grace growled, Murrow, you traitor. Murrow inhaled and swung his sword, his expletives as hard as the weapon in his hand. Inyo reacted purely on instinct. He charged swiftly, sword in hand, and hurled himself out into the alley with a roar. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Such rich imagery. And... Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here because it, you don't sound like English is your first language. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah. Where are I, you um, from? So I, uh, I'm from Germany, and um, I'm born and raised. Uh, by in the Germany. way, sorry, I should say your English is excellent. It's just I can hear a slight accent, so I just <laughs> wanted to point that out. Yeah. 
So you're born and raised in Germany. Yeah. And where was that? <laughs> yes. So uh, in Germany, a small village between Nuremberg and Munich in the south of Germany. And I didn't speak a word of English until I was around 14. And I really struggled with the language. So because of that, um, I had the chance to go to Ireland as a teenager for one summer when I was 16. And it was during my time in Ireland um, that I learned to speak a bit more fluently. And uh, yeah, so those are those are really good memories. But yeah, I'm not a native English speaker. Um, I'm I currently live in Arizona, so I think I think I might have some different influences. Maybe the listeners can hear that I definitely have a German accent. Maybe they can hear the American English. Yeah, that's okay. that's where the mishmash, the the mix comes from. There's nothing wrong with being German. Uh, and having English influences, I'm thinking of the Beatles, who of course were a German band. They were, oh, yeah. they were. Um, what's the name of the city they were in from 1960 to 1962? Well, they started in Hamburg, Hamburg, and they were a huge hit in Hamburg. And I think it, it's one of the iconic places that uh, Beatle fans flocked to because that was the beginning of, yeah, their stardom and i think hamburg still plays tribute to them and that's a special connection yeah they got their start there that's true hamburg so nicole you're currently in arizona how long have you been there i've lived in arizona three times now during my life at, at different times um what happened is this when i was 19 i met a young soldier in my hometown in germany and he uh, he's an american soldier and i travel with him so he's not active duty anymore, but um, we just, we moved around a lot. Our kids were born in all sorts of different places. And um, because of his work, because uh, of the work he did with the U.S. Army, we would always be stationed in many, many different places, usually for about a year, year and a half, and then move on. So it's nice not to have to uproot anymore and have a bit of a sense of home. But I do feel at home in many, many different parts of the world. I have made a home in Asia for a year. Where was that? Um, that was in South Korea. And I was a culture shock at first, but I got used to it. And I actually love the place. I miss the place. I love the people, the food. And, um, and Seoul, was that Seoul? Yeah, it was about an hour and a half away from Seoul. Yeah, so ha have you been? I used to live in Qingdao, which is just across the East China Sea from South Korea. Oh, no way. But so, how and, did you? And I and I popped over to South Korea, to Seoul one time. Uh, uh -huh. The food is very spicy. And, very spicy, <laughs> And yes. the, the metal <laughs> chopsticks, I found them very hard to manage because... Oh, my word. They're too thin. <laughs> they're, they're like too thin or something. And um, yeah, everything slipped off. Yeah, it's very difficult. Yes, yes, I remember that. Those were learning moments. Yeah. <laughs> Moments of frustration. What what brought you over there? Did you did oh, you teach over my, there? I wanted my children to learn how to speak uh, Chinese, so we popped wow. over to China and spent uh, eight years there. Huh. And we thought, you know, living by the sea would be great, but um, yeah. we didn't anticipate that the wind, the way in which the the world rotates, meant that we got the wind coming from all of China. So living by the oh. sea was not really that relevant. Oh, I see. So then we decided to go south and we ended up in Kunming, which is a beautiful place huh. in the, the very far south of China. Right. Yeah. Huh. So 
So you mentioned there you set up home in Asia. Where else did you set up home? When I look in my address book, I think I've collected over 23 different addresses in 30 years of marriage. Wow. And some of them were on army bases in North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, um, other places like Asia. We went back to Europe uh, to, you know, our Navy base here, uh, army base in Germany there. Like I said, Arizona, uh, California, Colorado, which I love. So many different places. And it seems to be seems to be kind of a theme in my life that um, even though I was, you know, I come from a very small town and I have the sense of uh, a nest, uh, that I'm also quite a quite a bit of a nomad, a traveler, and someone who maybe moves between different cultures and bridges uh, certain areas of cultures, uh, the language, the understanding, and I I take pleasure in that. But I also I also see the struggles of people who might come from different parts of the world and try to make a home in a new in a new culture in a new country. So, yeah, it's, an, it's a different perspective. It's an interesting perspective. That's so true. Um, I remember the challenges faced with living in China and not being of that area. And then even moving back to Ireland, there was huge challenges made by me <laughs> trying to acclimatize to the culture again and not knowing people. So that was tough as well. Yeah. But it, yeah. takes, it takes a while. Yes. I, I do recommend anybody who is just moving to a new area, join clubs, mm. join clubs, mm-hmm. because that's a, way, that's a way that you can actually um, forge good friendships, genuine friendships with people. Uh, yeah. And we, yeah. it is through people that we become people. So we're very social creatures. I like that. Uh, I got to remember that. It's through people that we become people. Yeah, I have to. I ha- I just want to echo what you said. It's true. Uh, it takes a bit of a strength overcoming that uh, natural shyness, but joining joining clubs or doing the things that you love to do with other people uh, and and uh, connecting, you know, being open to those connections. Yeah, that's important. Exactly. So, Nicole, yeah. you have been to Galway once, and you've written a book, or how many times have you been to Galway? Yeah, so in my dreams, <laughs> I have been to Galway <laughs> numerous times. Uh, like I said, when I was a teenager, I, I spent time in Ireland and I traveled around a bit uh, in the area of the Southwest, um, Limerick, um, the Burren. I think I made it as far north as maybe the Cliffs of Moher, but I didn't end up in Galway Bay and I have not visited Galway yet. So um, and I know that question would come up. Why is Galway in the book? I haven't been there. Why, you know, why didn't I write about other areas in Ireland? And it just had to do with the subject matter. But it's on my wish list. I do want to visit Galway. And when I did research for the book, uh, I went back to many historical resources, including maps of 16th century Galway. And um, it was fascinating. And yeah, there's so many good reasons to to go visit Galway and the entire area of Connacht, um, Clue Bay, where part of my story takes place, uh, the territory of the O'Malley clan, um, and uh, yeah, in the shores, the wild Atlantic Way, um, the coastal areas. I imagine it's quite beautiful. And um, yeah, I definitely want to head there, head there one day. 
So there's nothing wrong with writing about somewhere that you've never been. And I, mm. I remember I was listening to a Tom Waits song called Singapore. Actually, the whole album is called um, Rain Dogs. I fell in love with it in about 1993. And the first song is called Singapore. And I just had to get to know Singapore. I'd never been. And then I went to visit Singapore many years later. I can't remember. It must have been. I was in China at the time. So it was probably about 2018, I'm guessing. And, um, mm-hmm. and then what happened was I went to Singapore and it was nothing like the song. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, nothing like the song that I had imagined. But that's not a bad thing because it's still this fairy tale land. And it's funny because yeah. I, mm. I met Shane McGowan and he was the singer mm. of the Pogues. He just passed away there a couple of weeks ago. And yes. I, and he ended up in a hotel and I thought it'd be cool <laughs> to sing a song together. And I was drunk and he was gone too. <laughs> and then I, I kept asking him, give me a Tom Waits song. And uh, he said to me, Singapore. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was nice that... Uh, yeah, we both had this connection of that song. Serendipity. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, w- yeah. whenever you came to Ireland, did you say you did an English course? No, I just traveled around and I um, I was it was interacting with people, uh, okay. the people I met on the road and um, the people whose B&Bs I stayed at and the people out and about. Like in the markets, I remember going to Puck Fair um, on a it was somewhere near Limerick, and uh, I did spend some time in Limerick, and um, uh, I'm not sure if I should mention this, but uh, I got myself a clatter ring, and I know the tradition is that you're supposed to get it from a friend. <laughs> Someone's supposed to give it to you as a gift, but um, my clatter ring, uh, that was one of the main reasons I wanted to come to Ireland, and uh, I think in the 70s or 80s, the clatter rings kind of made a comeback. A certain generation, and especially, I think the people maybe uh, who live in America of Irish descent, they love um, the clatterings and they love wearing them as a symbol for their Irish ancestry. So I was in Ireland uh, in Limerick, and um, the the shopkeeper, um, I was trying on different clatterings. Uh, the shopkeeper told me the story, and it went something like this. He said, "Did you know that?" The clattering uh, originated when a Spanish Armada shipwreck survivor washed ashore here in the west of Ireland. And I said, I didn't know that. Um, he said, well, the, the more well-known origin legend, so apparently there are two. And he said, the better known one um, has to do with a man named James. Oh, sorry, not James Joyce, Richard Joyce. And he was kidnapped by pirates um and uh taken taken out of country i believe to north africa and he was enslaved and as he was enslaved he learned the goldsmith's trade so when he eventually was freed and came back to ireland after many decades he settled in what is now known as clatter the village of clatter next to galway and that's where he began to um make yeah, fashion the clatter rings with the design of the two hands that hold a heart in the center. So he told me that legend, but he said, 
um, there's also another legend. Uh, it's less known. And he said, um, the Spanish Armada shipwreck survivor who washed ashore, he was taken in by a farm family. And they hid him. He had to be in hiding. Back then, I didn't understand why he had to hide, but it became clear when I made when I did the historical research. It was because uh, the English troops, in especially in that area, in and around Galway and Connacht, were on high alert. They didn't want any any Spanish ships landing. They were afraid that the Spaniards would join forces with uh, the local Irish clans and would then start, um, you know, start to cause trouble and and be a military force. So anyway, the Spaniard uh, in the farm family, he fell in love with the farmer's daughter and he wanted to marry her, but the father was opposed to it. And he said, no way. Um, until the Spaniard gave her his only possession that he was left with, which was his, um, his friendship ring that he had on his finger. And it was, it showed the symbol of two hands grasping each other. And he gave that to the daughter and that convinced the father to, to say yes to the, to the relationship, to say yes to the marriage. And yeah, it was in, in Limerick in the store where I bought myself my first clattering that the story was given to me. And um, I am very grateful that it happened to me because I carried that story with me, that legend, and um, I always treasured it. And finally, I decided to turn it into a full-fledged um, story, a book. And um, it, called, it, it, you know, it challenged me to do a whole lot of historical research about the Armada, about the political conflicts in Connacht, uh, about the English occupation, and many, many other different things flowed into it. Uh, Grace O'Malley and um, Queen Elizabeth. And um, yeah, so that's that's how it all happened. But it was a very good time for me being um, being in Ireland as a, as a teenager. It was 1986. And um, another another very, mm, very tangible thing, a very shocking thing that happened to me uh, is uh, on my on my way back, uh, leaving Ireland after that summer, my ferry got caught in a really bad storm. Your um, ferry? You mean your boat? It was my yeah, my boat. <laughs> I mean, over here, it could also, especially whenever you start talking about uh, the legends of the past, it could also mean a little angel, uh, you know, that one of those little fairies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't mean that ferry. Okay, so your your ship, your your <laughs> ferry. Ship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the ship. Oh, but I love that. <laughs> now I have an image in my head. <laughs> Who carried me back out of Ireland? Ferry. Yeah, the ship. Uh, huge. You know the ships that yeah, ferry yeah. that bring the the cars and the the, the passengers from France or. Um, from England. Well, my ship was caught in a really bad storm and it was 1986, it's Hurricane Charlie. And um, I thought I was going to die that night uh, because the sea was just so wild, like a monster. Uh, it would fling this ship, this gargantuan ship up in the air and it would crash down, you know, up it would go on the crest of the wave and then crash down and everyone would be flung up 
uh, suspended in the air and then come crashing down on the floor. And um, yeah, it was nighttime, stormy sea, just horrific. It's, it's hard to imagine. And where did you spend most of your time? Did you spend most of your time in your cabin or out in the lobby or where where, where would you hang out? In the toilet? Yeah, in 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 the cabin. I had a cabin uh, bunk beds, I believe I remember bunk beds, and just clinging to the mattress. But that was pretty unsuccessful. I, you would be just flung out of your bunk bed, up into the air. Uh, you could try and hold on to the, the mattress or the wall. You would come crashing down either on the mattress or the ground. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure if that, if, uh, if that ship was allowed to be out, if they were just trying to you know, speed up or if they were caught unawares. But yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And um, so very grateful to have solid land under my under my feet again and um you know did not want to go back out on a ship for a very very long time after that <laughs> i'm not surprised yeah i was on a boat or a ship um it was a small boat large boat small ship i don't know uh but mm. it was in the indian ocean and yeah it's, mm. it's very frightening to be caught in a storm yeah yeah, uh, and I cannot imagine how people who do it for a living, um, you know, who are out either fishing or shipping containers, the mm. shipping um, cargo ships, how they how they deal with the elements because sometimes you realize how quickly things can be over, and you have maybe a different outlook on life, and you have a different sympathy, a different empathy for other people who might be going through that. Um, refugees included and I think that I carry that with me but um, because those things happened to me because I was told this legend on my visit in Limerick and because I was then caught in a, in a storm uh, um, it made the whole story come to life uh, because of that I came back to the idea that oh the Spanish Armada I thought they were like super strong uh, massive ships why did they why did they get into so much trouble? And weren't they supposed to be in England? What were they doing off of the Western Irish coast? So because of all of that, I started reading up on it, researching more, trying to find more fiction and nonfiction books and stories. But there isn't much. So I had to, I had to imagine a lot. I had to do a lot of historical research. But I... Um, my main point is, or what I'm guessing, is that when something happens that's personal to you, um, you carry that with you. It becomes very real to you. So, first of all, I should say that I've done my own bit of research here in Galway, which is home of the Tladdering, and 90% of the jewellery that seems to be sold in the jewellery stores mm. is the Tladdering. And anytime I have gone in, anybody who's buying those clatter rings that I've seen tends to be mothers and daughters together. So, yeah. so in terms yes. of in terms of you not getting a clatter ring from a partner or whatever, you're not alone. There's many people out there uh. wearing clatter rings <laughs> yeah. that are bought by their mothers or themselves or their daughters. Yeah, by by their mothers, by their daughters or sisters. 
And mm. yeah, I always like that. And and I do remember reading uh, reading about that that. Uh, going back um, in ancient history, those rings, even in Roman times, were given to friends or political allies, brothers, siblings, or or people who would show their love to each other, uh, couples who were getting engaged, uh, wedding bands. Uh, the original design was, I believe, just two hands clasping each other, mm-hmm. um, like a handshake. Um, Do you know whenever the first uh, designs came about? I think it started with those Roman, um, they were called feather rings with that handshake. So maybe 2000 years and maybe they go back even, even longer than that. But the, uh, clattering that we know, the very iconic design of the, the heart with the crown and the two hands, I believe that was the end of the 1600s. So maybe the early 1700s. And I believe that was in clatter in Galway. Uh, you've done a bit of research on Grace O'Malley. What can you tell about her? Yeah, so um, when I first decided on that story, the inner core of my story is is the legend. It's just that legend of the Spaniard, the Spanish Armada shipwreck survivor. And I thought that that is what my story is going to be about. But the more historical research I did, especially about... um, uh, the, f- from sixteen, uh, from fifteen fifty on, especially the fifteen sixties, fifteen seventies, it was a a time of unrest and political upheaval in all of Ireland, um, with the English clamping down, especially out in the western areas. Um, the a lot of the lords, especially the more powerful ones in and around Galway, um, would abide uh, by the new rules and um but there were clans that uh resisted the english occupation including the o'malley clan out at clue bay where grace o'malley um she was chieftain over her clan um from the 1550s i believe onward and she lived until 1603 or 1605 and she was exactly the same age as queen elizabeth in england and um the more I read about her, um, the more fascinated I, I became by her. And that's when I decided that her clan and her struggle and her life had to play an important role in my book because that was the that was the era. So, yes, she uh, she shows up in the book. She's actually the grandmother of Finley, who is my farm girl. I needed to have an Irish farm girl approximately the same age as my Spaniard. So there are two young people, both of them 17, 18, uh, the year that the Spanish Armada sails. But Finley is, um, definitely has that legacy. She is, um, she's connected to the O'Malley clan, but she happens to live on a farm just on the outskirts of Galway. Um, when I did the research uh, on Grace O'Malley, I realized that there isn't a whole lot in the historical records. Um, there aren't a lot of resources. It was hard to find um, um, eyewitness account or um, or historical records. Interestingly enough, more is written about Grace O'Malley by the English than the Irish. So, for example, um, there are palace records uh, Greenwich Palace uh, in uh, in London. There are records there, for example, that mention her by name. Uh, that she came to have uh, to have a meeting with Queen Elizabeth. What they talked about. 
um, what she requested. But, uh, but what I have come to see is that Grace O'Malley is definitely, was definitely kept alive in Ireland, uh, in the stories and in the songs. And even though she wasn't in the historical records, she was kept alive by the people uh, in in their songs. And I, I think it's still that way to this day, right? Yes, of course. It's funny that you mentioned Greenwich. Um, I used to live in Greenwich, and oh. uh, just down oh. the just down the road from the house that you talk about, uh, you know that there's two domes there. So he's got the Queen's house, and they got the two domes uh, mm-hmm. between the house and the river, and they were designed by Christopher Wren, who also did St Paul's Cathedral in London. Yes. The, ini- right. the initial design was that there was going to be one dome and it was going to be between the Queen's House and the river. But uh, it was decided then that it would block the view. So they decided oh. to separate that building so, oh. and then have two domes. And then it meant that the Queen or the monarch could have an unrestricted view of the ah. River Thames. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And oh, I think that's fascinating, yeah. <laughs> Greenwich is a very, very beautiful part of the world. And um, yeah, I really love living there. Can I ask, why did Grace O'Malley go to the Queen's house? Was she invited? Was she arrested? What happened there? Yeah, so it was so a few years after the Armada. And this had, has actually nothing to do with the Armada. But um, the, the new governor in uh, Galway, uh, an Englishman named Sir Richard Bingham, uh, started ruling over over Connacht um, with an iron fist, and he eventually managed to uh, take a lot of Grace O'Malley's land, her cattle, uh, destroyed uh, some of her strongholds, her tower, her houses, her castles, and uh, he also killed uh, two of her sons. And um, Grace O'Malley at that point. Um, saw no other way than to go directly to the English monarch. So she circumvented um, the local authorities and she sailed with, on one of her ships directly to London. She sailed up the Thames and um, anchored at Greenwich, which was one of the favorite palaces of Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth was born there. Uh, she loved being there. Um, her best friend, uh, Robin, was there with her quite often. And um, so Grace O'Malley sailed, uh, requesting an audience with Queen Elizabeth, not knowing whether she would be granted one, but she did. And the meeting is um, is a fascinating thing to read about because these two women realized when they faced each other that they are, both of them, queens in their own right, uh, Grace O'Malley being a chieftain, a queen over her clan, over her warriors, 
over her territory up in Clue Bay of her ships. And Queen Elizabeth uh, being um, a queen over um, a relatively small country that just started growing in strength um, in, um, and in political power. And they, um, they faced each other, um, and the historical records say that they spoke in Latin, but we also know that Grace O'Malley spoke many different languages, that she was able to speak at least French and Spanish fluently because of her trading. And the meeting was a successful one. Grace O'Malley was given back her lands, and the evil governor was ousted. Um, Queen Elizabeth saw to it that he was removed, um, that Grace O'Malley's lands were given back. And so in many ways, uh, it was a successful a successful meeting. And I was quite impressed by reading about it because you have to remember this is, this is the Renaissance. This is a time in history when um, all over the world, women were considered property, uh, were considered quite inferior. And to have a female ruler, a female queen, a female chieftain, was quite rare, maybe unheard of. Uh, it was definitely looked down upon by the church, uh, by many men. But these two women, uh, Queen Elizabeth and Grace O'Malley, uh, showed us that um, even back then, um, under strict patriarchal rules, um, they were able to do what was asked of them, to be strong leaders, uh, very wise political leaders, uh, smart, outspoken. And I found that quite impressive to read about that. Uh, that was the real history in an era where this was just so uncommon. Can you tell me the relationship between Spain and Galway? Yeah, oh, I'm glad you're asking that because... Um, that's one of the main reasons why uh, Galway is playing an important role um, is the setting of the book. So the story in my book, Inyo's Reign, takes place, of course, in Spain. At first, we follow Inyo, my protagonist, as he learns to sail aboard one of his uncle's ships, as he lives his young, uh, younger years in Coruña, which is basically due south of, uh, of Ireland. Back in those days, it would take sailors, traders, for example, approximately three days under, you know, with good weather to sail from Coruña to, to Ireland. And, um, yeah, going back in history, even before the time of the Renaissance, I'm thinking like medieval times and probably even before then, there was a lot of trade going on between Spain and Ireland and places like Galway, um, Dingle, Limerick, Cork, they would often see ships coming from places like France and Spain. And the Spanish traders would bring uh, all the goods that the Irish would love. Um, for example, wine, of course, um, iron. And what would the traders, you know, buy? What would they trade with? Um, Ireland was known, especially Western Ireland, was known for high quality wool and hides. Uh, cattle was big business back then. And um, 
yeah, so the hides would be traded down. Uh, and also um, fish, of course, which was salted, uh, dried and salted fish was would also be sold. And, and the merchants of Galway were quite um, wealthy. And uh, so the Spanish loved coming up there and trading. It was always, it was good business for both parties involved, the traders in Galway and the traders who would come up from Spain. And uh, many, um, many clans in Ireland, including the O'Malley clan, would also trade all the way down to Spain. So going back in history, there were strong ties between Spain um, and Galway. And uh, yeah, so it's, in, it's interesting uh, to research that um, there, uh, the poet James Joyce, the poet and writer James Joyce, for example, he described <laughs> he described many people in Galway as having this Spanish complexion. He would talk about them saying, oh, they have black raven hair. And uh, yeah, he would point out the, the connection also going back to medieval, medieval times, um, trading uh, with the North and Spanish ports. Yeah. What can you tell me about Valhalla? Oh. I I ask this because <laughs> there's a song there's a song by Led Zeppelin called Immigrant Song. Oh. And he mentions Valhalla. It's used in School of Rock and it's also used in Thor 3. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, tell me about Valhalla. Uh, well, origins of course from the Scandinavian world uh Going back to mythology, the the Olympus of the gods, of the Scandinavian gods, and uh, a place to look up to, yeah, where the gods and the the masters live. And you, what do, what do you know about Valhalla? <laughs> well, you know what? You're asking the wrong guy, because I always say, I'm a fan of history. History is not a fan of me. So in other words... I will read something and I'll go, wow, that's so fascinating. I'm going to remember that forever. Yeah. And then two days later, it's totally gone. Yeah. Like it never existed. So yeah. I've, you've just said it, you've just said it's a place. I thought it was a person. So now that you say it's a place, I'm remembering, yes, it is a place. Um, but yeah, I, this is why I'm a musician. I can remember chords. Ah, I can remember, yeah. okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to be playing a D minor <laughs> seven here or, you know, a, a major seventh or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but I cannot remember history. And mm. some people, I think, just have that type of intelligence. It's not, it's not it's cut it with me, unfortunately. Right. And everyone, and everyone has a different, um, a different uh, take on it. For some people, it's very important. And for other people, it's enough to have like a flavor or sprinkling, you know, how much world building did I want to put into the story? But when I realized what era I'm writing about, um, there was something inside of me that um, maybe a sort of ambition that said, you know, I want to, I want to do it right. I want to, uh, it's not going to be just a fairy tale. It's not going to be just a legend. I do want to root my story very much in the reality of what what it was really like. Did these people really exist? How could it all have happened? And it was a challenge, a major challenge, to do all that historical research 
Oh, and I have to tell you, another thing that was a major challenge was all the research into sailing ships at that time and uh, the armada, the rank structure, what did the ships look like, how were they built. So, uh, and I'm not a historian, this is not, I, I don't have a degree in history, I am, I'm a teacher, but I did, um, I did do a fair amount of research and I tried to write um, in a way that would bring to life uh, the Spanish Armada and the sailors aboard uh, and the life in Ireland in 1588, uh, the life in the clans. Um, there were a few scenes that were set in Grace O'Malley's tower house. Uh, it's called Rock Fleet. You can visit it. It is on the shores of Clue Bay. And um, I, I delighted in that. I, I had a lot of um, fun, even though it was lengthy and, and hard at times. I came many times I came to a point where I realized, um, you know, you have to find a balance. And I, many, many times I came to a point where I realized, well, how deep do I want to go? Is this going to be a book that is basically nonfiction, like a history account of Grace O'Malley and her very, very long, very complicated, uh, tumultuous political activities? Um, or do I want to find the essence? of Grace O'Malley and what she did in that year, 1588, and how she would have approached um, the, the problems that faced um, Finley and, and her family. How would she have helped out? And the same is true for all the things that have to do with ships and sailing, because that's not my background. I, you know, I didn't even read much nautical fiction. People like Patrick O'Brien, and and others so um the age of sail and other amazing writers so i had to find a balance how much of the armada did i want to bring into the book and i i had to balance it all out um there were scenes that took place in spain in ireland in england aboard the ships of the armada um in in rockfleet at rockfleet castle in the tower house um, scenes that happened between Grace O'Malley and her warriors, or Grace O'Malley and Queen Elizabeth. And for me as a writer, um, as a new writer, I always ask myself, okay, what's important to the story? What's the core of my story? And I always came back to my Spaniard, um, Inyo, uh, young Inyo. And I came back to Finley, the young Irish girl. And I thought, how would they see things? What would their world look like through their eyes? through Spanish eyes, through Irish eyes. And that is what shaped my story. And that is that is how uh, I approached uh, things. But um, maybe maybe you write too, or maybe some of the reader, uh, some of the listeners uh, also write, uh, maybe memoir or they write their own stories, be it fantasy or ed other genres in, in fiction. Mm, so I think... Um, that many people also realize that a whole lot of themselves, their own experiences and their own sensibilities and their own sense of justice and their own pain often flows into their work, whether it's uh, songs or, or, or stories. Um, you mm. know what I mean? Exactly. Um, it's bringing me back to a bit of advice that I was given 
as a child, which was write about what mm. you know. Yes. And it sounds like your experiences has brought you into creating something that's very personal to your journey as a nomad, as a person who's been caught in a hurricane on a ship and in the sea, mm. as a person who's traveled around Ireland, as a person who loves history, because you obviously do. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with writing, in my in my view, there's nothing wrong with writing um, a book if you're not a historian, mm. because, you know, it's especially if it's fiction, mm. you're coming at it from a fictional angle so yeah that's entirely cool for me yeah. uh yeah tell me how long did it take for you to write the book mm. yeah. yeah so like i said the story was kind of inside of me simmering since i was a, a teenager and um i always loved telling that story that short little legend i could you know you can tell it in like two or three sentences <laughs> the spanish armada shipwreck survivor and how he is tied to the clattering what it symbolizes so i would always delight in telling people a little story asking them where did they get their clattering from what irish ancestry they have but um i never really thought about writing until <laughs> till the pandemic hit so i'm a teacher I loved being in the classroom, but during the pandemic, I shifted to online, you know, like teaching and tutoring online. And uh, during during that first year, I realized um, just how much downtime I have sitting in front of a computer. And I, I just love being busy and creative. So the idea came to me. I thought, I have all this time on my hand where I'm not teaching or not grading what am I going to do with all this time? I'm sitting here at the computer. Sometimes I would have to wait for a class to begin. Yeah, I would have extra time on my hand. And um, that creative spark came and I thought, uh, I wonder what it's like to try and write. Um, let's see what stories I have inside of me. And on the top of my list were that Irish legend. I have another story I love very much, a fairy tale out of... Um, uh, Arabian Nights. Uh, it's a it's a legend that takes place in Persia. So I had to decide which one do I want to tackle first. And I made the decision, I committed to it before I realized how much historical research I would have to do. Um, if I could go back, I would definitely do the, the Persian fairy tale because it would be pure fiction. It would probably be very much a fairy tale. I would have so much creative freedom with that. But I committed to to um, Inyo and his story uh, and, and um, so I stuck with it so I, yeah I started in early 2021 and uh, so I would say that first year um, I wrote a draft rather quickly maybe it took me four months five <laughs> and maybe you can relate to that or some of the listeners can relate to that you just storm into something you rush into something and before you know it, you have a huge manuscript on your hand that you then have to edit. You have to reread it. You have to give it to other people so that they can give you their opinion. And um, the editing was painful and lengthy. <laughs> so while I was writing, I was doing historical research. And then while I was editing, I was doing more historical research. And um, so the editing and the going over it again and fine-tuning it and polishing it, that took another year. So that whole process was two years, basically. If anyone had told me at the beginning <laughs> that this this little project, mm -hmm. this little creative endeavor would be 
would take that long. I probably would have stopped right away, but you know how it is. You you just rush into something. You you want to do something so badly, and then you then you do it. You stick with it. And um, in the in the end, looking back, I'm glad I did um, because. It was a goal of mine. I wanted to see it published. I wanted it out in the world. And my greatest joy is knowing that people read the story. People can connect to my characters. Uh, people can connect to the experiences that they that these people have. Maybe people can find out uh, some interesting bits about the history. And maybe it'll inspire them to like look up their own favorite parts. Maybe they want maybe now they want to learn even more about Grace O'Malley and what her life was really like. Or maybe they want to learn more about Spain and the connection to Ireland. Why did the Spanish Armada sail? And all those all those interesting um, bits and pieces. But yeah, that's uh, so it took me two years. The book was published in February. So almost almost 10, yeah, about 10 months ago. That's that's how it all came to be. Yeah. Two years is about the going rate for something good, I think. <laughs> I wrote a musical oh. and starred in it. It was a one-man musical wow. celebrating the music of Prince. It was called Prince, the musical on banjo. Wow. And from the moment of conception through to the performance it was two years. Oh. Me and my buddy, Michael Rayberg, we came up with the initial idea. Wow. The whole crack was that we were going to write this together and uh, act it out together, acting all these different characters from Sly Stone to um, James Brown, obviously, and Michael Jackson. And mm. yeah, all these guys. And we're all acting different characters. So then Michael being a bit of a, stage fright person he backed out oh. with some weeks ago so i ended up acting maybe 11 people on stage wow. all with different voices you know and walks and mannerisms mm. it was called prince the musical on banjo <laughs> and what i did was i recorded all these backing tracks but I left holes in them for the banjo so i was able to play the banjo live and then sing oh. and then a dolly's here back and track so all the synths were recorded on accordion and so on so on so on and i was working on pwc at the time so i was going to work coming back home and just i wouldn't leave the house from friday afternoon through to monday morning i'd just be in at home bam 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 banging it all out wow. putting this weird slideshow together so i could interact with it and because Prince was notorious for suing everybody, I couldn't put it up on the internet and I couldn't advertise it on the internet. So what I had to do was stop people <laughs> in the street, <laughs> friends of mine usually, <laughs> and tell them, I'm doing this show, do you want to come? And there was no government subsidy, so the tickets were 1999. <laughs> Actually, the tickets were 3121 reduced to 1999. Yeah. Uh, both of them are Prince albums and Prince songs. And yeah, I recorded all the backing tracks and I performed them live on the banjo. So it was a bit like... Banjo, banjo, like karaoke, 
So, uh, oh. and yeah, the whole st- the whole story was that Prince was just using the albums to promote his latest hairstyle. Oh. And if you look at the artwork <laughs> of Prince's albums, it's so, he's always got a different yes. hairstyle. So it's all about the hair and the music was just a vehicle to distract. But the actual oh, real thing was the, was the hair. And Michael Jackson was his arch enemy because he was jealous of Prince's hair because he was, of course, bald. You know, from that <laughs> Pepsi Cola advert <laughs> accident, or was that yes. just a sham to yes. cover up his plastic surgery? I don't know, but anyway, oh. you know, with that accident, he was actually bald <laughs> as a coot, and he a coot eagle. You know, yes, that's what that means, coot eagle. You look it up and yeah. Google it, and um, yeah. So Michael was jealous of Prince. I <laughs> wanted to kill him, and uh, he put a bomb. Oh. Underneath the Millennium Dome, <laughs> it was going to go off or something. Yeah. And uh, in the year 2000. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail, but <laughs> basically, Prince was going to lose all his hair in the year 2000. Um, <laughs> so he decided he was going to party like it was 1999. Oh. And, um, I can't remember, to be honest, because I spent two years putting it together and then. I staged it twice, actually. And the first time I staged it was Prince's 50th birthday. Wow. So you do the math. What year was that? I think it was 2006 or seven. And then uh, I did it a week later. And then I haven't gone near it since. Wow. Oh, I did it one more time. It was a placard, placard headphone festival. <laughs> I kind of did it. It was a headphone only concert. And uh, I did a re- redacted version or diminished version of it a diminutive (laughs) (laughs) that word version of it it was great crack obviously um that took two years oh that's hilarious and And, and so creative i I staged it on his 50th birthday so it was a total homage (laughs) to prince yeah (laughs) i love i love his music oh yeah yeah Yeah, i can tell and where where was that where where did you perform that was in london london in huxton music hall yeah 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 Oh. So yeah, I'm, I I really miss the man, but mm. I I hope he's not going to his lawyers aren't going to come after me mm. now. I've said this because it's <laughs> the first time I've mentioned it on the internet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, it's funny you mentioned there about the Spanish connection. Do you know that we have the Spanish Arch here in Galway? That's right. Uh, the Spanish Arch in Galway is is yeah. right there. The landing fact, where the old harbor was, where the ships would. Um, would unload their wares, right? Exactly that. And in fact, if you look at the the Galway podcast mm-hmm. logo, yeah. that that is the Spanish arch. It's not a, it's not a lady lying on oh, her side, I uh, see. With, with, <laughs> <laughs> as some people have said. <laughs> I see it. Yeah, the two the two bumps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the two arches. The two, yeah, I, the I two get arches. it now. Now I get it. Yeah, I. I I know it's so subtle. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. See, yeah, I'm not a designer, <laughs> so I had to make do with my limited skills, and I thought I could do a couple of arches with some gradient uh, colors. Mm-hmm. So that's the story there. Yeah, that's, that's so. You, you mentioned there about. I, I want to ask you about what does it mean to release a book? So is it digital or have you printed it? And what's your decision behind that? Oh yeah. A uh, good question. What does it mean to release a book? Uh, it's it's almost like um, 
it's almost like a child that you release into the world. Um, and you make yourself very open and very vulnerable. And um, creative people, whether you release music or whether you release stories into the world, creative people live in this in this um, push-pull, in this in-between space where, on the one hand, they are maybe a little bit more on the introverted, uh, very, very introspective, very creative side, quiet maybe. And on the other hand, they want to release their creativity. They want to share it, you know, in, in hopes that other people would connect to it, that other people can see the emotion in it. And it's it's a bit scary, but I, I published it as a paperback and as a Kindle ebook. So currently you can find it uh, on Amazon, but you can also request it at a bookstore. Like I, I have my own ISBN number, but right now um, it sells pretty well as a paperback and it sells pretty well as a Kindle ebook. That's how I released it. But um, yeah, what does it mean as an author? It, it just mean, means uh, opening yourself up to how other people see things and the realization that some people like the story and some people um, don't like the story. And can I be okay with, um, you know, people just not liking it, hating it, even criticizing this, that or the other, you know, that I didn't do enough research about the, you know, what it was really like in the rank structure of the Spanish Ramada. Couldn't I have been more authentic and written exactly in the ways people spoke back then and and all that? But uh, so the challenge, I had to rise to that challenge and I have to live with with the notion that people can now read um, you know, some very personal things like how I see the world and um, they can read about how this love story between my two characters and it's a little uncomfortable releasing something into the world that's so that's so very private. And um, you know, the story has parts of me in it too. My my own experiences with um, self-esteem issues, um, with uh, issues of abandonment and um, being the other, uh, you know, not the not the one who who has a, a root here, a nest, but being the other, the outsider. Um, and um, yeah, but all in all, um, I'm glad it's out in the world, and uh, I'm I'm really glad I get to share it with people, uh, especially people who have a connection to the land, whether it's the territory of the O'Malley's, whether it's Galway or Spain, uh, whether it's their own Irish ancestry or whether it's their last name. You know, maybe they have a last name like McDermott or O'Malley. O'Flaherty, O'Neill, and they want to look into that. Where do their ancestors come from? Yeah. So I'll tell you a story. I was at a talk one time in Trinity College in Dublin, mm -hmm. and on stage was a panel of people discussing Samuel Beckett. Mm -hmm. One of those people was the director, Jim Sheridan, and I asked him afterwards about a movie that he had directed called In the Name of the mm -hmm. Father. And that story is based on a true story between a father and a son. 
and yeah, others, yeah. Guildford Four, they were known as, who were locked up in England mm-hmm. for a crime that they did not do. It was for a bomb that went off in a town called Guildford outside of London. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, Jim Sheridan put the father and the son in the same cell and they weren't even in the same prison. So I asked him about this and he got really angry at me. <laughs> he said, why are you asking me about that? What about the last scene? Why, didn't, why don't you ask me about the last scene? Because I staged a scene that didn't even happen. I said, I haven't even seen the movie. I'm just going by what I've wow. read in the reviews. And he went, I said, tell me about the last scene. What happened? He said, I staged a courtroom scene that didn't even exist. Why did you do that? Mm. Because I want to be sued. I want the British government to sue me. And then the truth will be told as to what exactly happened by the, by the British government against these people. And then I said, okay, well, as I say, I haven't seen the movie. And then he, he says, do you, do you act? <laughs> I said, well, kind of, yeah, I'm always acting. Yeah. And he went, uh, okay, give me a, give me a phone call. He gave me his phone number. <laughs> so, so he's obviously always looking for, uh, I would say talent, but he included me in that. So just people, I would just say people, uh, to, to, uh, to connect with. Um, so what I'm saying to you by telling you that story is that it doesn't matter if it's not accurate. Mm. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it, what matters is that you're telling the story that's inside of you. That's what matters. Mm, I agree. And if it, if you, and I also absolutely agree with you, whenever you put a piece of art out, you are standing in front of people naked Mm. Mm -hmm. people can see you and people can judge you they can laugh and they can point or they can applaud but you are naked um it's it's you know have you ever seen the venn diagram which one side says excruciating self-doubt and then the other one is megalomania and then where they intersect in the middle it's called art (laughs) so you know i am I'm standing naked every week, twice a week, actually, with my, with my podcasts. Yes. So it's it's a leap of faith, you know. And mm. I've just got to, I've just got to be. It, it, I don't know if it's bravery or stupidity mm. that makes us <laughs> that makes us do what we do. Mm. But there's a great saying which is, "No artist completes their work; they merely abandon it." Mm. Oh. The original line is actually, no poet completes his work, he merely abandons it. But uh, I've adapted it a bit to make it more gender neutral and also to make it um, expanded so it's more art-based, so it encapsulates mm. everything from poetry to to book writing right. to picture making or whatever. You oh, know? Yeah. yeah. So so I would say to you, Nicole, mm. it doesn't matter mm. that it's not historically accurate. It doesn't matter. You know, you're always going to get people who are criticizing you. Mm-hmm. It, what matters is that you bloody did it. You spent two years doing mm-hmm. it and you did do the research. You mightn't have done enough for some people, but you know what? If you had have done the amount that they wanted you to do, it still wouldn't have been enough for these people. Mm, that's true. For, all, for some of them anyway, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I would I would say don't worry about that. Can I ask you how many books did you print? And how, well, I won't I won't ask you how much you sold, but how many did you print, and how much did that cost you? Oh, uh, that's that's a good question. Um, 
I think I'm really lucky in that the way um, the way it works right now with my distributor is they print it when the bookshop requests it. So if there's a customer that says, I'd like this book, then the distributor gets an order, they print it, and they ship it to the bookstore. Same with Amazon. If you want to order a paperback, it's called print on demand. So I was in the lucky position. I didn't have to, you know, get ready, say, 500 books. I can just wait to see, you know, how many uh, will be in each order. And usually they ship really quickly. However, I also did print quite a few author copies, uh, copies for myself. And then I took them to places like the local market or um, a book signing event where other authors had their tables and would sign my copies for people. So I would always have to be ready. So yes, I did um, put down my own money to print my own books. And <laughs> at the end of the summer, I think it was in September, I had a bunch of copies left over. So there was a Celtic festival here in town in July. Um, it's called the Northern Arizona Celtic Festival. And it's a celebration of Celtic heritage, Irish, Scottish, and many, many people from all over Arizona and New Mexico came to that event. But it wasn't as busy as previous years because our weather, we had just a terrible heat wave. So not, not a lot of people would want to come out. So I tabled at that event and it was lovely meeting readers and talking to people about their Irish ancestry and their connection to Scotland and Ireland and what they knew about the history um, of that era. And I love uh, connecting with readers and I love telling them about, about how the how the story ties into that. But yeah, I had some, I had a bunch of copies left over. So then I had to get creative and I had to find other ways of, you know, putting it out into, into the world, like giving away free copies to friends and families, but also connecting with other local businesses. For example, we have a meat hall here in town in Flagstaff. It's called Drinking Horn Meadery, and they make meat, which is honey wine. And they also have, like the place itself also has a Scandinavian, Celtic, Viking vibe, and a lot of people go there for the ambience. So I teamed up with with um, Drinking Horn Meadery and hosted a bunch of free events there, uh, making Viking crafts and um, just having a good time with people in the evenings, um, drinking meat, but also having my my little pile of books set up over on the side, um, and then. Whenever people were interested, uh, I would tell them about it. And um, I realized that the personal connection, like that is that was actually quite successful. I'm not an, a marketing expert. I don't know how successful authors or um, publishers do it. I'm sure they have their ways. I don't have a professional publisher. I don't have that um you know, the big five publishing houses. I'm doing it all by myself, my own marketing. I designed the own my own cover for the book. I yeah, so I did everything by myself. Um that was part of the that was part of the challenge and part of why it took so long <laughs> to get it to get it out into the world. But like you mentioned, um with the musical and your experience, you know, advertising it, drawing people in, how do you how do you do that? And in your situation, you had the challenge of, you know, knowing that, oh, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
you know, it's it's great that you're doing this, and it's you know, if you're doing something by yourself, it always takes longer than you anticipate. I was expecting that I'd be making money on my <laughs> podcast, for example, mm. by now, yeah. and I made my first bit of money last week, actually, thanks to the people who bought me seven cups of coffee. Oh. Text man, if you're listening, yeah, yeah I'm going to declare the text on that. <laughs> that thirty dollars or whatever, thirty five dollars, mm. whatever it was. So, um. Yeah, it always takes longer than you expect yeah. uh, these types of, of ventures. I interviewed Phil Coulter recently. Mm-hmm. He's a famous musician in Ireland. And um, he said, talent will get you in the door. Hard work will make you stay mm. there. But since he said that to me, that's really been ringing in my mm. head about five times each day. And it's like me pushing forward. You've got to keep, you've got to keep pushing at it. Mm. So it's whenever you run out of steam, it's like, no, get up. Get yourself together, mm-hmm. push it forward. So um, you, you're already doing it because you got in touch with me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not not that yeah. I'm a big shot, but the thing is, I have a listener base now. So this is fantastic that you're doing it because, yeah, you're making it happen. Yeah, that's true. And um, you're absolutely right. I did it because of that. I thought Galway podcast, that's, that's ideal because the people who live in Galway, the people who listen to uh, a podcast with the, the topic of Galway or Ireland podcast, they might have an interest in this. And uh, yeah, that's why I reached out to you. And uh, after reaching out and after connecting with you, it was fascinating because uh, I love some of I, I listened to some of them. I love some of the podcasts. Um, Roisin, for example, the young athlete, uh, also the link to the funeral of uh, Shane McGon. And um, well done. Uh, I I was just listening to that oh, yesterday, interviewing so many people, uh, asking them about their memories, about their favorite, what are their favorite memories, their favorite uh, poke song. And uh, so, yeah, I wish you all the best, too, with the, with the podcast and continuing uh, along that way, because uh, it seems to me like you found you found uh, your niche, you found your passion there. I think so. I mean, I always think that I've got the best job whenever I'm doing that job. And then it's only afterwards that I think, actually, I didn't like that job that much. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but this job, I actually love it. It's just, yeah, there's one thing missing, which is the income. Uh. There, was, there, was a great, there was a great TV show uh, on in the past, and it was called only fools and horses mm. and the character the main protagonist called Del Boy he would say to his younger brother this time next year we'll be millionaires you know yeah. and I keep saying this time next year I'll be earning an income <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that you have it in perspective that you don't say millionaire but then you're like I don't have an income I hear you I hear you and you know I think it's important to have that goal and to have that dream I'm gonna I'm gonna share one more go for it one more thing about me um, uh, along those lines I had this dream I I thought well this is fantastic you know Everyone, everyone who loves Ireland will want to read this book. And then, you know, when it becomes a bestseller, then I'll be able to maybe buy that that lighthouse that's for sale out at Clare Island, which was Grace O'Malley's island. Grace O'Malley has a tower oh. house out there, but there's currently a lighthouse out there that's for sale. Um, I think it's 
I want to say it's 1.5 million euros. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, that's a, that's a beautiful dream to have. Uh, you know, then you can live there on the magical island that was Claire, uh, Grace O'Malley's Claire Island. Um, so, yeah, those are the dreams we have. And I, I think it's lovely to have those, um, the, those dreams or even smaller dreams like, oh, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was like um, a Grace O'Malley Museum and I could go visit um, mm. or something like that. But oh, one more thing just popped into my head. There, there's a few more. There's a few more things in Galway. Uh, if people are interested, that you can actually go see where uh, where you have a bit of Spanish Armada history. So you mentioned the Spanish arches, of course. Um, over on Fort Hill Cemetery, that was where uh, I think 300 Spaniards who were captured by the English troops were beheaded. And they were beheaded and it was bloody, quite bloody. But the people of Galway then decided that they would give the Spaniards a proper burial. And there's a plaque commemorating that the people of Galway did this, did this, and it was a time of great poverty. So, for the people of Galway to come out and, <clears throat> you know, to do that for the Spaniards, it's quite moving. And um, oh, one more thing pops in my head: there, uh, up in in Sligo, uh, at a place called Streeter Beach, it's near a small town called Grange. But on Streeter Beach, there were three Armada ships that wrecked that September 1588, and 1,100 um, survivors washed ashore. But the locals had the order from the English to go um, kill any survivors. So a lot of Spaniards drowned, um, and a lot of Spaniards were, were executed right that on the beach. But nowadays, um, the people of Sligo, they do a very moving remembrance up there at the beach every September. And the Spaniards send one of their current, uh, their modern Navy ships, and they celebrate alongside the Spaniards. And it's it's quite moving. Uh, you can also uh, find the, the, you can find it on YouTube. You can watch it uh, every, every year's celebration. And it's a, it's a very nice um, remembrance of what, what happens there. Yeah. But coming back to Galway, I wish there was more that we can see um, in, in and around Galway. Um, I would have loved to you know, be able to find more. I do know that at least one or two unknown Spanish Armada ships uh, sank in Galway Bay. One, um, uh, one of them near Barna, which is about two or three miles west of Galway, um, and another one near Karna. But I believe there might be one or two more somewhere in Galway Bay. So if anyone is ever interested in like diving, you know, excavating, finding a Spanish Armada wreck, um, who knows, maybe finding some treasure, finding some of that gold that was supposedly on those ships. So you never know what might come about in the future. Yeah. And can I ask you, what's your ambitions for the book? It sounds to me like it'd make a great movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Are you in talks with anybody about making it into a screenplay or anything? No, unfortunately not. I wish I wish something was lined up. I mean, that's a dream too, because it's a very, very, I think it's an epic story. You can visualize so many of those moments. 
um, the, the shipwrecks, the storm, Grace O'Malley and her warriors, the scenes that are taking place at Greenwich Palace with Queen Elizabeth. So I think it would make for a very, very fascinating, epic, gripping movie or sort of Netflix series. So I'm definitely uh, open to that. I just need to be, you know, just need to be found. I'm <laughs> Do you know any screenplay writers? Uh, I don't know any screenplay writers. I was actually actually researching on how to how to do um, playwriting or screenplay writing, but I think I realized that's probably not my forte. I don't know. Do you know any? You said you wrote a musical, right? I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wrote a musicals, but I wouldn't put myself forward. I don't have the time. Uh, I well, I I can't prioritize this. Uh, I I need to say that I need to say it that way. Um, I do know somebody, however, it's. Um, my friend, and he's German, but his partner, I think she's Spanish. Mm. Oh, wow. And I can ask her. Oh, wow. Well, well, that's... But the thing is, I'm going, I haven't spoken to these people mm. now in fifth, 10, mm. 15 years, mm-hmm. maybe. But I don't mind getting in touch with them because I only lost touch with them because I went to China and lost touch with everybody. Mm. But I'm slowly but surely getting in touch, in touch with these people mm. again. So I don't mind reaching out to them to see if uh, she'd be interested. Mm. She studied uh, script writing oh. and she is very, very keen in getting work in that area, but again, couldn't get the break. Uh, so she, you know, I don't know if she could be a big shot uh, script writer now or maybe she could still be trying or maybe she's, you know, put it on the back burner, but I'll certainly ask her anyway. Mm. Oh, thank you. Uh, that would be amazing. It, it, it almost sounds serendipitous that she has a Spanish connection. <laughs> yeah, and German. <laughs> and German. How amazing yeah. would that be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anybody else who's listening, these should try to get in touch if they're interested because it was better to have many people trying to do it rather than one. Can I ask as well, where can people buy the book? What's your website? Um, so I do have a website. Um, it's um, nh uh, slash schwabacher.com. But you can also simply uh, Google Inyos Ring and there's options popping up. It'll take you to Instagram, to Facebook, to my website, to the um, uh, Amazon link. But you can also just ask at your local bookshop, especially if it's an independent bookshop, because I love supporting uh, indie bookshops and other indie writers, indie authors. And uh, I would actually love to be in touch with people. Uh, you can contact me uh, via my social, social media. I always love hearing from readers, uh, answering questions. Yeah, looking forward to anyone uh, who wants to be in touch. Yeah, thank you. And Nicole, there's um, quite a few independent bookstores here in Galway and they do readings uh, so if you ever wanted to come to Galway to launch your book here um, they'd be, I could put you in touch with a few of them oh, and yeah. they'd be very happy to hear from you especially on with something that's Galway related. Oh yeah thank you oh yeah I would welcome that, that that's actually a dream of mine I wasn't able to you know during the pandemic years travel much but yeah it's definitely on my wish list uh, uh, wouldn't that be great to be right there in Galway or up in Westport in Clue yeah. Bay to, you know, be right there at the places where my book takes place. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. 
So we're coming to the end, Nicole. Is there anything that we haven't covered here? Uh, I think we've covered it all. Thank you so much. Uh, there were some interesting topics and great questions. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you um, and explaining, you know, all the different uh, routes where the ideas came from, what research, what historical research, research I did. And uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. You're very, very welcome. I'm uh, very happy to support you, especially, well, a fellow creative person who has links to Galway. That's ringing a lot of alarm bells with me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel the same way. All the things you mentioned, especially about your music, musical, mm. um, living abroad, you know, coming back to a place that you consider your home, but still feeling, you know, not feel still not feeling it. You're know, having to reconnect. I think that's so interesting, you know, to see all those parallels. Are you a musician yourself? Um, just, just for fun, just on my own. Um, I play the guitar. <laughs> yeah, I love music. Do you know a song called Anmut Sparat Nicknak Muha? No, I don't know that. It's from, it's, you're from Bavaria, yeah? Yeah. It's the Bavarian That's right, area. from Bavaria. So I think... I think this song is from there. It's also known as Kinder Hymn. Hmm. Sing it to me. So I'll sing a little yeah. bit. I have, to, I have to Google the words. Hold on, hold on. Um, okay, you ready? Mm -hmm. Here we go. It's in German, so forgive me for the, the, trans, or the pronunciation. Anmutsparit nich noch muhe, Leidenschaft nicht noch verstand, dass ein gutes Deutschland blühe, wie ein anderes gutes Land, dass die Wolken nicht erbleichen, wie wir eine Räuberin, sondern ihre Hand reichen uns wie in anderen Wolken hin, uns wie in anderen Wolken hin. Und nicht über und nicht unter anderen Wolken wollen wir sein, von der See bis zu den Alpen, von der Oder bis zum Rhein. Und weil wir das Land erbessern, lieben unbeschirmen wir's, und das Liebste mag soon scheinen, so wie in anderen Wolken ist, so wie in anderen Wolken ist. You know it? Huh. I don't know that one. I heard you sing about the Alps and, uh, it it sounds beautiful, and when you sing it, it almost sounds Yiddish. <laughs> like wow, I'm getting all sorts of German, Alpine, Irish. I think that's my dairy accent. I think the Yiddish <sighs> must be coming from Draperstown in County Derry, known for its Yiddish accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. that is gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I used to work in a place in London, and we'd stick on. You know, we get CDs coming in through the door from um, different record labels and because we were reviewing them as well. And um, this came in one time uh, on a CD. It's called Iser Material. And 
It's uh, Bertolt Brecht's music uh, with Hans Eisler. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it just melted my heart whenever I heard this. It's about seven minutes of pure Germanic bliss and um, Mm. really very, very... um, German in the most beautiful sense and very very Bavarian, as I say. It's it's all the ah. Alps and as you say, the Rhine yeah. and all the rest. So hey. whenever have I was, you have you been? Uh, oh yeah, I've been there many times. I, I <laughs> so so whenever it's in China, I taught this song to the, my Chinese students and they were all oh. singing this song and it was I can't remember the occasion, but there was some German and maybe the national holiday of Germany or something, I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. So I taught these kids how to sing in German. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally see that. An, an Irishman yeah. uh, teaching Chinese to sing a beautiful Bavarian German song on the occasion of a, a German holiday. Yeah. How amazing is that? Well, it's a bit of crack, isn't oh, it? It makes the day go in faster. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my god, I love that. I can I can totally see that. But um and another thing that just popped in my head when you mentioned Bavaria and uh, the ancient traditions. Yeah, we were talking about the Irish clans, right? And the history of yeah. of like clan life. Like even before the Romans came and then especially before, you know, before England tried to grab up all of Ireland. There are so many connections in terms of way of life. And um, like when I look back on like the Germanic tribes, the Bavarians and, you know, in, in pre-Roman times, uh, all those Germanic tribes, the Romans called barbarians, you know, savages. And the same is true for like the Spaniards and the English. They would always write about the Irish clans as being savage, you mm. know, like beneath, <laughs> mm. beneath something but there's so much in in the in the ancient culture of the way tribes lived back then of the way they were being led uh often led by females um and um the unfortunate thing is and this is true for the germanic tribes and the ancient irish clans um there were so many intertribal squabbles you know petty quarrels the same is true for the Native American tribes that, you know, there were missed opportunities because of all those little <laughs> feuds. And then when the huge occupying forces came, I was too late in many, in many instances to, to unite. But yeah, to see, uh, to see the connection, um, you know, going back, I think there's a bunch of Viking influence too. If you look at uh, some of the, Irish clans and the Germanic tribes, yeah. right? Like the yeah, Vikings. Absolutely. Well, Dublin is a Viking city, famously. Ah, uh, yes, that's mm. true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so so are many northern German towns. We were talking about Hamburg and the Beatles earlier. Yeah. Hamburg definitely was, right? Mm. And many oh, yeah. many other towns because they were like coastal or or um yeah, they were along rivers or in coastal areas. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> I could talk to you all day, Nicole. <laughs> but unfortunately, I, I got I, I got, same, I got my kids to feed, so I'm going to have to stop it here. But um, uh, yeah, uh, is there any, uh, have we covered everything? Is there everything else that anything else that you would like to say? Yeah, I think we covered everything and then some. And then right? some. That's it, Shinee. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm saying Shinee okay. twice now. So Shin means that, and A means it. So Shinee means that's it. That's correct. Yeah. Ah, 
Oh, thank you for teaching me. That's something I want to do. Learn some more Gaelic. Yeah, Gaelic. 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 Yeah, yeah. Gaelic you... is like uh, like more from the Gaul area, France, I think. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Do you speak any Gaelic? I, I speak a little bit. A couple of fuckalogum. I means I have a couple of words. It's not something mm. rude. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for for taking all this long, long time for me and um thank you for your patience and for the wonderful questions no that's all um, i really enjoyed yeah, the good. conversation as well yeah same here well i look forward to hearing from you and uh, i'll definitely be in touch and i'll be a supporter of uh the galway podcast thank yeah. you so much you're welcome and i will send uh i will get in touch with my friend whose partner is a scriptwriter, or at least was a scriptwriter. so let's oh, hope thank you so much let's yeah. hope that yeah. something becomes and, uh, of that well, I'll send them a copy of the book for sure. And let me know if you want one. Cool, yeah. Well, I'll wait till you come to Ireland and I'll get it off you and you can autograph it for uh, me. Let's do it that way. Let's yeah. do it that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, go feed your kids. You oh, want yeah. them to be starving. Yes. Vielen Dank, mein Dame. Yeah, vielen Dank, mein Herr. <laughs> Bitte schön. Yeah, danke schön. <laughs> okay, tschüss. Yeah, tschüss. Social Media Original Podcast and Production.